Welcome to the Woman Warriors Podcast, where we're working to help you call a truce with your anxiety. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Now, here's your host, Elizabeth Cush, LCPC. Hi, and welcome back to the Woman Warriors podcast. Today, my guest is Ray Leonard, the Abuse and Domestic Violence Program Coordinator for Anne Arundel Medical Center here in Annapolis, Maryland. We're talking about domestic violence because October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and I wanted to share some details for you about abuse indicators in relationships the long-term effects of abusive relationships on mental and physical health, and also how to get help. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Ray. Thanks so much for joining us on the Woman Warriors podcast. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. It's pretty exciting. So Uh, Full disclosure, Ray and I worked together for years uh, at Anne Arundel Medical Center's Abuse and Domestic Violence Program, and so I'm super excited to have her on and talking about domestic violence. So if you could just tell us a little bit about you and what inspired you to do the work that you do. Well, I was actually um, worked as a cosmetologist and I went back to school and took a volunteer job at the courthouse. And um, it was for the YWCA as a civil advocate. And I just it just clicked and I loved it and have been doing the work ever since. I have been working with survivors for approximately 17, 18 years now. Wow. So it was not originally my uh, goal, but fell into it and love the work that I do. Yeah. And were there times as a cosmetologist that you recognized, you know, even before or maybe while you were doing the volunteer work that you were recognizing that maybe there were some things that people were sharing with you? Because I know I talk to my hair person all the time (laughs) that, that, uh, you know, that maybe were signals that somebody was being abused or things that you saw that kind of were like, ah, something's going on. Absolutely. And I think one of my biggest observations was that when you are standing behind the chair doing hair, people are much more honest than when you're interviewing them in a courthouse or a hospital setting. They are telling the the true um, unfiltered story. So it's definitely, yes, I did recognize. Wow. Yeah. Something about not being in a courthouse, I would imagine would feel a little less intimidating, but um, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. But also not having to look at someone when, you you know, if you chose not to, if you were standing behind, you know, that that might make it easier for people. Yep. So, you know, having done the work with you for years, I know that not all abusive relationships are physically abusive. So what are some of the signs that you see where maybe there's more emotional abuse going on? One of the biggest uh, indicators of abuse is isolation. 
So it is separating somebody from their family and friends and weakening their support systems. Mm -hmm. Probably the most important thing uh, for survivors to have a support system. And when there's nobody around to offer that help, um, it's, it's more difficult. That's a big part of the psychological no, when folks are saying, abusers are saying, you know, nobody else loves you, nobody else wants you, I'm the only person that will ever want to be with you. Mm-hmm. That is huge because now all of a sudden, if your support systems are diminished, it feels true, even though it's not. Yeah. And so, how, you know, what impact do you see on? the victims or even the survivors of either emotional or physically abusive relationships. Let me go back just a little bit and say that I, I have never had a survivor state that the physical abuse was worse than the emotional and psychological, Mm -hmm. the emotional and psychological is the core. So for the long-term mental health, uh, impact. There is an increased risk of depression, anxiety, PTSD. Um, there's an increased risk for substance and alcohol abuse. There's an increased risk for suicide. Mm-hmm. And then with the long-term health effects, um, there is an increased risk of chronic adverse health conditions, such as diabetes, um, increased uh, heart disease risk, um, pretty much anything that is long term um, and can affect your health is can either be caused by or um, folks have an inability to manage those long term health effects. So I know, having worked with you at Anne Arundel Medical Center, that a lot of the survivors we saw uh, after the fact were um, people at the drug and alcohol rehab center, as well as in the behavioral health part of the hospital. So just leaving a relationship doesn't necessarily make everything better for the people. These symptoms can last a lifetime. Correct. That's absolutely correct. The trauma lasts a very long time. Um, And especially if you have um, to to keep in contact with your abuser, say in a situation where you have kids, Mm -hmm. um, that makes it even harder to recover because there's still power and control dynamics, even if the contact is limited. And I I know a lot of people struggle with, you know, if this was so terrible, like if you were being mentally abused or physically abused, you know, why don't you just leave? Why don't you just get away? And I know that can be very difficult for the people in those relationships. But what do you see? What keeps them there? One of I had previously talked about isolation and not having the support systems around you as you once did. And I think that is probably one of the biggest barriers is believing that nobody else would want to help you or be willing to help you. The second thing is, is financial abuse is a huge part of the power and control dynamics Mm -hmm. of domestic violence. And So even if you wanted to separate, it's very difficult to 
have enough resources to be able to leave and be independent. Uh, they do have programs such as domestic violence shelters where somebody can go in temporarily when they are in um, imminent danger. They do have very limited transitional housing resources. But for the most part, somebody making a plan to leave, it's very difficult to gather enough resources to support themselves independently. Yeah. I know for some of the people that I worked with and have worked with over the years, like not wanting to take the kids away from the father was also a component, like not wanting to split the family up, even though it was unhealthy. It, everybody has different reasons for that. It's, they may feel like they are being they guilty or that they're being the bad guy by separating yeah. the child from their father. Um, but, we, but we do know that even parents who try and protect their kids from the abuse, any arguments, any physical fights, majority of the time, the kids know exactly what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Kids pick up on a lot. Correct. And that has a long-term impact on them as well, not only with health conditions, but they're more likely to um, be in an abusive relationship, either as the abuser or as the survivor. Yeah. Now I know like here we are talking about, you know, it, the women leaving and it being a man who's abusing, but talk to me a little bit about that. Is it women who are more likely to be abused or in an abusive relationship? Women are more likely to be in an abusive relationship. Um, men are also survivors of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. I believe that the stats vary, uh, but according to the most recent stats, one in three women, one in seven men is approximately the percentage rates. Mm -hmm. um, so women are more likely to be victims of domestic violence. However, there is a large percentage of men who are victims as well. So we don't want to discount them by any means. Um, they are victims across the board as well in same-sex relationships as well as heterosexual. Yeah. So men are getting abused for sure, but the majority of victims are women. Correct. We want to keep in mind that anybody can be impacted by domestic violence. It doesn't matter if you're young, old, rich, poor. Um, it, it can happen to anybody yeah. at any time. Yeah. And I think that is one of the things people sort of stereotype about abuse is that it's, you know, lower income or this certain um, nationality is worse in terms of being abusers or whatever. You know, I think that people want to sort of create this, not me, this doesn't happen in my world. Correct. And one of the benefits, as you know, from working at the hospital is you see a larger spectrum of victims. You, mm -hmm. know, you really do capture uh, rich, poor, um, different backgrounds in the hospital setting because it, when there's an injury or an emergency, all people go to the hospital. 
And that was something, I, I think the thing that really struck me or one of the things working there was recognizing how the resource component of it, if you did have money, say, and you were being abused, you did have potentially have access to more resources, whereas some of the, and what I'm thinking of in particular is like minorities where maybe their voice isn't being heard in the community anyway through police or, you know, support systems, and then they're being abused as well, that that can leave them even more isolated. That's absolutely correct. And somebody who has a prominent position in the community is less likely to go and and utilize the community resources designated for domestic violence. It, 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 it skews what what's happening out there, I think sometimes. But so, so too, though, you know, talk to me a little bit about how undocumented immigrants struggle just like anybody else with potential abuse. But what's how does it them reaching out for help, how is that different? And how are they maybe more marginalized than your average documented citizen? Yeah, and right now, unfortunately, folks are so scared to come forward to receive help. Even it's even difficult for them to come into hospital settings or healthcare settings to get treatment because they are just terrified that they're going to get arrested. Yeah. Yeah. Even though in most healthcare settings, nobody is going to ask. That's not even a question that's asked. Yeah. Uh, So, but it's more difficult to call the police and reach out for help. Um, We actually started developing uh, safety plans to keep safer in the house Mm -hmm. because if, if people are not going to call the police. Uh, What can we do to assist them to keep them safer while they're in the house? Yeah. You know, we talked a little bit about long-term effects, but what do you see, because you guys do have that behavioral health center there at the hospital, what sort of mental health symptoms are uh, women or men who've been abused? What are they coming to the hospital for if they're struggling with mental health issues? So a lot of times we're seeing people coming in um, with depression, uh, suicidal ideation, anxiety mm-hmm. is a huge indicator. Um, and then that also may be accompanying, you know, chronic headaches as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. I know um, talking about chronic headaches, but also just chronic pain. I know we, you know, there were definitely some issues physically like fibromyalgia and yeah, chronic headaches and yeah. So it really has such long-term effects, but what's the most effective way you see uh, for people to get help? If they're in a situation where they think maybe their partner it feels like they're a little too controlling or very controlling. They have very little resources. They're maybe getting physically abused. What should they do? They can always call the National Domestic Violence Hotline Mm -hmm. anytime, and that is Mm 800-799-7233. If it's not safe for them to make that phone call, or to um, access the the hotline online, 
when they go to the doctors, they can talk to their doctor about um, how to get how, how to get help. They can go to their local emergency room and ask for help. Because sometimes maybe they can't make that phone call themselves Correct. from their own phones. Correct. Or maybe they can't get away from their abuser to be able to talk safely on the phone, to um, call friends or family, or to contact other other resources. Yeah. So doctor's appointments are a good place to ask for help yeah. or disclose what's going on. Yeah. Plus, it also impacts your physical health as well. Mm-hmm. So important for your doctor to know that Correct. these things are going on. Well, and two, I think some of the fears maybe for people asking for help is that the physician or the mental health provider or whatever is going to call in child protective services, or they're going to go right to the house and lock up the husband, or they're going to force me to leave, even if I'm not ready to do that. Correct. And in the, in the state of Maryland, um, I cannot speak for other states, but but in the state of Maryland, domestic violence itself is not a mandated report. Um, child abuse is. Mm-hmm. So disclosing any child of current or past child abuse is reportable. But domestic violence in itself is not. So you and wouldn't be calling the police the minute somebody disclosed that they were in an abusive relationship. Yeah. Correct. Well, and I think part of what I appreciated about the program there at the hospital was that it wasn't about forcing someone to make a choice or a decision that they weren't ready to make at that time. Correct. And I think we've had probably in the first six months of this year, we've had over 500 patients Mm. um, and maybe, you know, 10 to 15 were actually, um, relocating, whether it be to shelter or to uh, travel to go live with family members, whatever it may be. So it's a small percentage Yeah, that are ready to, to actually make that move. It yeah. takes planning. It's a process, not an event. You know, I know, Maryland, we're really fortunate to have politicians, for the most part, that support this domestic violence initiative in the hospitals. But tell us a little bit about if someone were to come to particularly Anne Arundel Medical Center, but there are some other hospitals throughout the state and disclose domestic violence, what happens? What's the procedure and what does your program offer? So when we receive a, a consult request, it could be for somebody who is disclosing that they're in a abusive relationship or it's because a practitioner is recognizing the signs and symptoms of an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. So when we respond, it can be anything from providing education Mm -hmm. on the dynamics of domestic violence. A lot of people do not recognize that their relationship is abusive. It may not feel right, might feel volatile, but they're not identifying it as abusive. So it could be education. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we can be providing um, intensive safety plans that may include uh, filing for protective orders that may include, um, you know, going into a safe house. Yeah. So more longer term intensive uh, helping them safety plan and make plans to leave. Correct. And our, our biggest goal is to do an 
an intervention, a short-term safety plan, and provide the resources for them to follow through with longer-term services. So you mentioned that, you know, sometimes people don't even recognize that they're in an abusive relationship. So psychoeducation or education around domestic violence and abuse is important. But what is it that you're picking up on or the staff is picking up on that might cause them to call you guys in? Okay, so one of the biggest indicators that we see is the hypervigilant partner. Mm -hmm. which means somebody's coming in for medical treatment and their partner will not leave their side. So it's very difficult to ask questions about abuse. For example, if somebody came in with a broken arm, their partner may present with them. uh, Staff may try to separate them and and they are making it very difficult to separate. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, The patient may look at the partner to answer all of their questions, almost as to defer to them or get the okay for them to answer a question. And if a person is there and maybe not identifying the abuse and you're picking up on some of this, how do you work with those patients if the partner is so hypervigilant that it's really hard to even talk to them by themselves? We try to just use regular process to get them by themselves. Sometimes we'll ask to uh, make arrangements to use a separate area, work with staff to try and get a few minutes alone with them. Mm -hmm. Um, There has been occasions, though, where the partner has been so hypervigilant that it became uncomfortable trying to separate them. And we actually felt it would be more dangerous to continue to work to separate them. So we did not at that at that time. Yeah. So I guess, you know, what I want to stress too is that like you're not forcing this person to talk about what's happening in front of their partner and potentially putting them at greater risk. You guys are no, very absolutely. sensitive to Absolutely not. Yeah. Once it once we could make a couple attempts to try and separate, but it, you don't want to be aggressive because it could actually make the whole situation much more dangerous. For everybody. Correct. So I really appreciate your uh, depth of knowledge and your willingness to share that with us today. So the bottom line is that To me, it feels like there's help out there, um, but it's complex and abusive relationships aren't predictable and they're not all like, these are the things you're seeing. It could be very different for each person. Correct. And and even with a safety plan, safety plans are very individualized. Um, You know, it's great to have a bag and it's great to have copies of documents, but everybody Um, has, when they leave, should have an individualized, very specific plan that suits them. And are there, you know, before we uh, wind up, but are there certain things that you feel really highlight when it's, you know, potentially lethal violence? Right. So what are some of those signs that you think it would be important for listeners to know that if these things are they're in place. This is a situation that's highly, highly volatile and dangerous. 
some of the most specific things that are indicators of uh, high lethality are mm -hmm. uh, strangulation. Mm -hmm. So if there's been strangulation attempts or uh, in the past. Correct. Either either currently or in the past. Okay. Uh, also, if there is access to a weapon, such as a firearm specifically, uh, if there are threats to kill. So taking those threats seriously, particularly Correct. when there are, you know, a history of strangulation and or weapons in the house. Correct. Uh, the threats to kill and then also the perpetrator expressing suicidal ideation as well. Mm. So him saying, I'm going to kill myself. Correct. Or her, whoever. The, Correct. The, the, yeah, the abuser. And in those instances, what's most important to relay to the victim? That they could potentially be in a very dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, minimization is very normal. Uh, even just to get through the through the day, it's it's very normal to minimize the level of danger, um, but actually recognizing the potential for severe injury and even lethal assaults. Yeah. And you important to recognize. Absolutely. Well, and for people who are in those situations, it, it helps them cope if they're minimizing, right? If they're constantly Correct. thinking this is horrible and I'm going to die, that's a very stressful way to live. Right. Right. That's how you get through the day is to, to minimize. You yeah. Know I mean, yeah. Yeah. And you guys have like particular tools that you use in order to sort of assess the lethality. Is that right? I mean, do you guys Correct. use that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Uh, we do have we do have access to. There is research based tools. Uh, one of them was created by Jackie Campbell. It's a danger assessment, which is a longer assessment. Mm -hmm. um, and then from that assessment, there is a lethality assessment protocol created by um, Maryland Network Against Domestic Violence that is used for first responders, and that is a shorter version. Um, it's more, it's more um, universally recognized now. It's used by police officers as well as some hospitals and social service agencies. Yeah. Well, and I think one thing that we didn't mention about um, going to a hospital that might be beneficial for someone who's in an abusive relationship is just that record of, Correct. you know, being there at the hospital, if, especially for injury, but even just disclosing, like there's some legal record that you were there and there was potential abuse. Correct. And we're, we're treating domestic violence as a as a healthcare issue. So we do have a place to document those dynamics in the medical record. And we do have the ability to, to photograph injuries as well. Yeah. So sometime down the line, if somebody decided they wanted to get a protective order or start, you know, separation proceedings, they would have access to that record. That's so really important. Well, Ray, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, it, do you mind if you could repeat that national uh, hotline for domestic violence? That would be great. Sure. It's 800-799-7233. 
Awesome. And if you're local here in Annapolis, you can always go to Anne Arundel Medical Center, which is where Ray's program is, and ask for help there. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate your being a guest. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. As always, I appreciate my supporters, the subscribers, the listeners. I appreciate your tuning in. I hope you gain some understanding about domestic violence and ways you can get help. If you are struggling in an abusive relationship and you're concerned about your safety, please call 800 799-7233 to get help. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Ciao for now from This Woman Warrior. Thanks for listening and subscribing to The Woman Warriors podcast. Music was written and performed by Andy Cush. If you'd like more information on this episode, you can find the show notes, the resources shared today, and links to the guests' profiles at womanwarriors.com.